Welcome to another edition of Destination Annapolis, a podcast focusing on the people, places, and events that make Annapolis and Anne Arundel County, Maryland, a destination of choice for discerning travelers. I'm your host, Susan Seifried, with Visit Annapolis and Anne Arundel County, and I'm happy to have as my guest today, Dr. Tuck Hines, Director and Principal Investigator at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center in Edgewater, Maryland. Welcome, Tuck. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Susan. It's uh, great to have the opportunity to talk with you and, uh, and your listeners. So for nearly 56 years, the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center, CERC, has been conducting some of the best environmental research in the world right here in Anne Arundel County. Would you please share with our listeners why and how CERC got started and the importance of the work that's done there? Sure. Um, well, uh, CERC is the um, research institute of the Smithsonian Institution based in Washington, D.C., but as you point out, we're located out here in uh, Anne Arundel County, just south of Annapolis, about five miles south in Edgewater, Maryland. We began uh, almost 56 years ago uh, when uh, a bequest from a uh, eccentric uh, dairy farmer and businessman named Robert Lee Forrest uh, left his uh, 368-acre dairy farm and uh, $1.7 million in stock to the Smithsonian Institution, completely unanticipated by the institution. Uh, since that time, uh, we've added uh, land to the 368 acres to encompass 2,650 acres of land surrounding the Road River and part of the West River uh, as a long-term uh, research facility and a public education and environmental uh, conservation facility uh, serving uh, research needs for the nation and the world for that matter, uh, and providing uh, education and public outreach uh, uh, programs for the citizens of, uh, of the county and the state and the country and, uh, and beyond that. So you work a lot with ecosystems and you're dealing with some heavy duty issues in our world today in terms of climate change and pollution and invasive species. And you touch on all that in your research correct? That's right. Um, uh, the core of what we do as a, an environmental research center, of course, is environmental research. Uh, and that encompasses uh, five large areas of, of research, climate change and, and the many complexities associated with climate change and its impact on our coastal ecosystems, uh, on uh, pollution ecology, uh, particularly nutrients uh, and heavy metals like mercury, on land use effects, uh, how uh, urbanization, suburbanization, farming, forestry, those things affect, uh, affect what's going on. Uh, and then impacts of uh, fishing and overfishing and other factors that are affecting the food webs of our uh, coastal systems, uh, including those things that are migrating up into the rivers and streams. Uh, and then lastly, changes in biodiversity um, which can be loss of biodiversity uh, over time um, from things like fishing and other things, but also the introduction of uh, non-native species into these systems, which drastically alters the, the function of these. Altogether, we're focused on how ecosystems function and these populations and species uh, interact together with the uh, environment uh, <clears throat> to understand how uh, linked ecosystems in the coastal zone, the land-sea interactions uh, in this function and how we can uh, sustain them and build them to be more resilient in the face of uh, 
impacts of humans and uh, to understand how they basically function in order to protect them and conserve them. So having said that, what about climate change? What can you share with us in terms of what we can do? I know we always talk about think globally, act locally, and certainly in the research that you do, you come up with a lot of good information that is shared with policymakers and um, those of us out there who want to try to make a difference, what can we do? Well, um, in addition to the research, a major function for uh, the Smithsonian as a public, uh, public institution uh, and for CERC is to convey and help uh, educate uh, people, the public, uh, and to uh, inform policymakers and resource managers on, on the consequences for decisions and their actions. We do that in a wide array of things, just like we do um, our research across a, a spectrum of activities. But uh, climate change uh, is uh, these days uh, the big gorilla in the room, so to speak. Uh, it's all pervasive um, and everything that uh, we are doing is uh, adding up to huge impacts of climate change. Primarily that's coming um, to us or upon us by uh, the burning of fossil fuels, coal and petroleum but some other things as well, uh, things like uh, refrigerants uh, for uh, air conditioning systems and uh, that kind of thing have a different sort of gas that uh, affects uh, what the composition of the atmosphere is, um, is and how that's changing, particularly rising carbon dioxide from the burning of these fossil fuels. And that's creating the greenhouse effect, which is creating global warming. But there's many consequences of that uh, global warming not just on uh, climate and on weather itself, but on the consequences of, of that change. And that's where uh, it's important for people to understand that their daily lives in energy use and how they behave and use these coastal ecosystems has tremendous consequences. And there's things that they can do to help reverse that and help uh, uh, reverse it uh, to flatten the curve, so to speak, of rising carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So what can people do? What's one, what are some of the things that people can do? Well, those are, um, those are, many of those things are obvious. Uh, for example, if uh, the source of uh, the problem is carbon dioxide and the carbon dioxide is coming from burning fossil fuels, we have to use less, less energy. Um, but in order to do that and sustain our uh, economic reliance on energy, we have to switch uh, the source of the, uh, of the energy, that is use less um, coal and less uh, petroleum products and switch to not only more energy efficient uh, ways of living, but also to more uh, renewable energy sources like solar and wind and tidal uh, uh, and wave energy and things like that. Um, and that allow us to, to, to do that. Controversial in that, of course, would be things like um, nuclear energy, which does not produce uh, carbon dioxide, but it, uh, so it's from a global change point of view, the experts um, show that uh, nuclear energy is an important uh, part of our energy mix that steers us away from uh, the, the carbon, carbon dioxide producing forms of energy. Of, uh, but it, it also has a, large ramifications, it's expensive to develop uh, and has certain dangers uh, associated with it that most of us know about. So the most important of these is um, switching to more energy efficient, smaller cars, smaller homes, 
put you know insulation uh, into your house and weather shipping, all of those kinds of things are very important. And then uh, of course, switching to solar panels and uh, wind energy um, are the main way, ways that we take advantage of uh, what we call um, renewable energy. So what are some of the other ways, maybe simple ways that people can do their part? Well, uh, in addition to um, <clears throat> these things about how they use energy and saving energy, there's a number of very important environmental uh, ways that people can contribute to reducing climate change and enhancing uh, the natural ecosystems around them. So one of the things that's uh, key uh, in uh, our coastal ecosystems is trapping carbon, that is carbon sequestration, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere uh, and into uh, uh, living systems. After all, that's where coal and petroleum originally come from, from, from pulling carbon dioxide out. And what climate change is, uh, is resulting from is burning and releasing that carbon. So we can enhance those ecosystems, the natural systems around us, salt marshes and forests, uh, seagrasses, mangroves, uh, coral reefs, oyster reefs, things like that, that pull carbon out of the atmosphere and uh, trap it uh, in, uh, in these systems uh, in the form of wood or peat or buried carbon uh, that is, uh, is important. So protecting those uh, ecosystems that we see uh, around us um, and sometimes don't think so much, they're doing active services for us. And that's why conservation of forests uh, is important and the uh, enhancement of things that are resilient ecosystems like salt marshes and seagrasses and coral reefs uh, is really important. And those things are things that we all participate in, um, not only in our own uh, private yards, but in how we manage uh, community resources uh, all, all around the world. So with rising sea level, people are trying to address that. Are there more environmental friendly ways to go about that than others? Yeah, so one of the consequences of, uh, of global warming and climate change is that the um, polar ice caps are melting and uh, water is actually expanding. As you know, if you um, heat a, a pan of water on your stove, it will expand uh, and, and that causes a rise in the level itself. <clears throat> But uh, one of the things that you can do, um, or the consequences of that, is uh, sea level coming on the shoreline and rising and inundating uh, our coastal communities. Uh, here in Annapolis, we find that problem uh, pretty frequently uh, down at City Dock. But there are a lot of communities uh, in places like Miami and um, lower uh, Chesapeake Bay, Norfolk, and on the eastern shore, where rising sea level and subsiding land are causing uh, pretty serious problems uh, and these systems um, that we are talking about conserving are systems that both protect against the storm surges and rising sea level, but also trap carbon and sequester it. With rising sea level, a lot of people talk about putting up seawalls, but I understand there are friendlier seawalls than others towards crabs and rockfish. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, um, as uh, sea level uh, rises and especially storm surges uh, coming ashore with uh, the increasing frequency and intensity of, um, of hurricanes and, and uh, nor'easters and things like that, that push water uh, onto a shore and, and uh, can impact uh, the people living and the functions and businesses along the, sh along the shoreline. Uh, that's a problem. And the natural tendency for humans has been to engineer a solution to that, build a, 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 a 
a wall uh, or uh, a whole bunch of rocks along there to, to protect uh, from that rise. But the problem with that is it often damages the shallow water systems uh, that are so critical for juvenile fish and crabs and shrimp uh, in places like Chesapeake Bay. Those are the critical nursery habitats where those uh, little organisms find refuge from predators that are out in deeper water, the predatory fish and crabs. So if you build um, uh, a seawall, you're creating deep water right at the edge and no shallow uh, habitat for those critters to, to uh, move into and hide and escape uh, from the, the big predators. So the question is what to do about that. You still have a problem of uh, sea level rise and storm surge. Well, um, what we, our research has shown and uh, what uh, the permitting um, folks in the Maryland Department of Environment and uh, Army Corps of Engineers and so forth are doing these days is to uh, require that we create what's called a living shoreline rather than building a long line of rocks uh, or concrete wall or, uh, or bulkheads along the shoreline create a dashed line of rocks uh, offshore a little bit uh, that allows water to exchange in and out the shoreline uh, and create shallow water there. But still uh, the rocks offshore, uh, which we call sills, uh, form uh, barriers that intercept the energy of waves. They don't intercept the rise of sea level, um, which is coming in, but they do prevent the impact of storm surges and uh, and that's really uh, valuable. And that creation of that wetland behind there then begins to grow and is a resilient ecosystem that is both trapping carbon and creating habitat. So those are good things that are helped to flatten the curve of rising uh, temperatures and rising carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere. And we in this area who love crabs and love rockfish, uh, that's something good to consider in terms of we want to preserve that population and enhance that population. So the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center has made tremendous strides in combating invasive species. Can you talk a little bit about that, Tuck? Sure. Um, invasive species are species that are not native to uh, a, a, a habitat and are particularly um, brought into a place where people are living as they wanted to transport for various reasons intentionally species from someplace they know to another place where they're, they're living. Sometimes they do that and activities happen inadvertently of introductions. Now with the COVID virus, for example, we've seen uh, a very clear case of how uh, an, a species can spread very rapidly around the globe. Um, by airport trans airplane transportation, for example, of people as vectors uh, of disease. Uh, people understand that now and how important and how rapid and pervasive that can be in today's uh, global economy and global transportation system. But there uh, have been uh, travels of humans and their cargoes and their activities around the globe for thousands of years that have been bringing uh, species <clears throat> that evolved in one habitat and introducing them into another habitat with oftentimes very serious consequences. In coastal systems, uh, coastal marine systems like uh, Chesapeake Bay, for example, um, it turns out that ships are one of the main sources of transport. Now, ships uh, transport species, introduce species in two ways. Um, 
for uh, hundreds of years. Um, when John Smith first came in, for example, he came on a wooden ship into Chesapeake Bay from Europe. And growing on the bottom of that ship were all kinds of barnacles and mussels and other critters uh, that form what we call the fowling community. Most uh, people who uh, use boats and own boats in, in uh, Chesapeake Bay and uh, Annapolis area try to keep their boat hulls very clean because uh, those critters uh, cause water resistance and uh, slow the boat down and require more, more uh, energy to move it, more fuel, and that's expensive. And commercial ships do the same thing. So as we went from wooden ships to steel ships, then we began to use um, paints that would uh, prevent uh, barnacles and other things from growing on the bottom. So um, those bottom fouling organisms are still a problem, but much less so now with steel ships and with um, anti-fouling paints. But those big steel ships uh, often have a different source of invasive species, which is ballast water. Now, ballast water is not bilge water. Ballast water is water that's intentionally managed by the ship in order to maintain its trim and balance uh, in the ocean floating. Um, big ships typically nowadays uh, transport cargo from one port to another port. And they offload that, they're empty, and they take on ballast water to remain into the level of uh, that's safe and trim within uh, floating. So they don't float up too high and become unstable. So uh, let's pick an example. Let's say a container ship coming up into Baltimore or a coal ship picking up coal. Now in the case of coal, uh, we're exporting coal to say Europe or, uh, or the Mediterranean. A coal ship comes in, it loads up coal, it goes back to uh, Israel or to France, and it offloads the coal. When it comes back across the Atlantic Ocean, then it takes up water in that source port, full of plankton, larval stages and organisms, microscopic sometimes, but very small organisms into that, brings it back and comes into back to Baltimore, whereupon it releases that ballast water and all those organisms into Chesapeake Bay as it begins to load a new lo load of coal. So the transport of coal is one thing, but it's also transporting all the ballast water and all the organisms as propagules uh, for introduced species with that. Now, it's, that's a, a one-way transport, but we're not the only recipient of that. Let's take um, containers. Uh, containers uh, can do that as well as, as coal. So for example, if um, we get containers that come from Latin America or China, for example, or Asia, that come in here um, with uh, goods that are produced in the uh, global economy on a big container ship. We offload those containers that has weight. So as we do that, uh, say in Baltimore uh, at the container terminal, then those ships take on ballast water here from Chesapeake Bay. And uh, when the ship goes back to get another load of uh, containers and cargo, they offload that in those ports. So we're actually exporting invasive species and ballast water in turn. So this is a big sort of exchange system uh, that first became um, publicly aware in uh, about 1990, about 30 years ago, when zebra mussels were uh, introduced into the Great Lakes system and had big consequences for fouling uh, commercial uh, freshwater intakes and uh, cooling systems 
and on ships and all kinds of surfaces in the Great Lakes with big ecological and big economic consequences. And it turns out that those zebra mussels were introduced into the Great Lake by ships coming from Northern Europe up the St. Lawrence Seaway with uh, ballast water, which they then released into the Great Lakes and introduced zebra mussels. So that was a highly visible uh, and, and consequential introduction. Uh, and since then, uh, Congress established uh, the National Invasive Species Act of 1996, so six years later, fast action by con congressional standards these days. And, uh, and CERC scientists uh, worked with Congress uh, and are appointed to work with the US Coast Guard to manage ballast water to help present prevent uh, the introduction of species by transporting ballast water from one place to another. And the way they do that is they dump it in the middle of the ocean rather than in the coastal zones. Is that correct? Right. So the initial challenge is, okay, uh, we want to manage that ballast water so we don't create that problem of introducing species by um, planktonic forms and, and small forms in the ballast water. So what do we do about that? The easiest thing to do uh, for ships uh, was to do what's called mid-ocean ballast water exchange. And mid-ocean exchange is simply um, flushing those tanks, those ballast water tanks or car sometimes cargo tanks that have the ballast water from a port in the middle of the ocean and then taking it up and replacing it with mid-ocean blue water uh, ballast water that comes across into the next port and when you flush that out you know, or release that into the port, let's say Baltimore, you're using, you're releasing water and plankton from the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which is a habitat mismatch from the low salinity water, for example, in, um, uh, in, in Baltimore, uh, and uh, greatly reduces the risk of introduced species. It does not eliminate that because it's a it's about a 90 to 93% uh, effective thing, but there's still some risk about doing that. But that was the initial approach to require uh, that, that ocean-going ships do this mid-ocean uh, ballast exchange as a management uh, ballast management practice, and that it be reported <clears throat> what they did and how they did it and where they did it. They have to report that to the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. <clears throat> so every commercial ship arriving to every port in the United States from uh, Anchorage, Alaska to Miami, Florida, and from Honolulu, Hawaii to Boston, Massachusetts, has to report <clears throat> their ballast management practices. It's about 110,000 arrivals a year um, to CERC, and we have about over 3 million records now of, of how that's been going. Um, so initially, all that was available to do uh, to manage this problem was mid-ocean exchange. More recently, as new ships have come online, <clears throat> we've helped the Coast Guard test the, um, the inventions of uh, the, the shipping industry to do treatment of that ballast water to be a virtually 100% effective and measure the standards against that. We don't invent the technology, but we test how effective that technology is. <clears throat> so that now, um, uh, approaching 40% of commercial ships arriving have uh, onboard uh, shipboard uh, treatment technology to treat ballast water so they don't have to just do exchange, but they can treat that ballast water. <clears throat> and that's going you know, event, uh, in due course uh, as ships, uh, older ships are replaced with new technology to be 100% uh, 
exchange. And that is going to a global scale um, uh, treatment uh, approach to the shipping industry. And um, not just in the US and working with the US Coast Guard, but uh, through the International Maritime Organization uh, on a global scale. So in 30 years from say 1990 to 2020, um, we've helped to change the behavior of a, a global uh, shipping industry and how ships are managed uh, around the world to help reduce and prevent the introduction of invasive species by um, ballast water. So, so much of what you do at CERC, you find out this very helpful information, you share it with policymakers so that they can make science-based decisions. But on a really local level, you invite regular people who just live in Anne Arundel County or nearby to come and learn at CERC through your citizen scientist program. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, we, we have a very active uh, array of programs for engaging the public. Um, locally, um, local citizens uh, all around us here in Anne Arundel County and globally as we invite scientists and visiting managers from other countries around the world to learn about how to manage balanced water, for example. But locally, um, we provide a number of um, activities and programs for citizens that they can participate. First, we're open six days a week to the public, uh, Monday through Saturday. We're not open on Sundays uh, at the moment. Um, and there's a number of things that people can do, uh, trails and bird watching and nature photography and those kinds of things. But you, if you're an interested person and want to get involved in the research programs, uh, there's an opportunity to volunteer to participate with our scientists as a citizen scientist. Uh, you don't have to have any particular background or training. You can uh, come in and learn about uh, programs. We have uh, more than 20 different projects that uh, everything from uh, understanding invasive species and tracking those to measuring trees and catching fish, uh, uh, helping to understand uh, climate change or chemicals uh, in, in the water, lots of different things. Um, and you can participate in that, be trained and become part of a team uh, on a project or multiple projects. Project might last a day or two, but it also might be ongoing for, um, for, for many years. We have some uh, 500 people, citizen scientists in our citizen science program that are helping us uh, do these things. And we could never begin to do as much or as extensive array of research as uh, uh, without them and their really valuable assistance. In addition to that, you mentioned the different trails. You have three different trails, don't you? And seven miles worth of uh, walking opportunities and biking. Mm -hmm. Yep, we have a, a trail network here of um, uh, several trails um, and that, that's ex continuing to expand. Um, we're open now, even with COVID, our buildings are not open, but the, the trail system is open for the public. Uh, and it's around presently around seven miles of trails that's been recently refurbished and restored. Um, <clears throat> and uh, you can think of those in varying uh, loops, if you will, sort of like maybe the Olympic uh, uh, logo of, uh, of Olympic rings connected. So each loop is, uh, is a shorter distance of so a mile, mile and a half or so, but you can connect those up to get a longer distance if you want. Uh, and allows you to explore the landscape here. Um, that's uh, really quite interesting. Some of the historic sites, as well as the natural sites, um, both uh, in the terrestrial systems and along the shoreline. 
And then you can also uh, launch a canoe or a kayak, uh, not, not uh, bigger boats, um, but you can uh, do canoes and kayaks here and, uh, and explore the shallow uh, edges of the water here, protected waters of the Rogue River uh, and enjoy that uh, different perspective of the shoreline. Yeah, 15 miles of shoreline. So that's quite, uh, quite an opportunity for people who wanna launch their canoe or kayak. And I think it's pretty exciting that right here at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center, you have the Smithsonian's oldest historic property. Would you care to talk a little bit about Woodlawn? Uh, sure. Well, Woodlawn is a, a, a colonial house that was built in uh, 1735. Um, and it uh, is the oldest uh, existing uh, extent uh, property uh, structure building uh, in the Smithsonian Institution that we're in the last stages of restoring right now. It also has uh, two other uh, historic components on it. One was uh, an addition that was built in 1841, and then uh, a third addition or a second addition to the original house that was built in 1979. So we're uh, restoring that, um, and that is a, represent, a representation of uh, human uh, activities here, um, particularly since Europeans and then African-Americans, enslaved African-Americans came in uh, to the property and understanding the interactions between those people uh, and the environment, uh, both the opportunities that they use to exploit natural resources and the impacts of those human activities on the system here. We should also remember that um, for at least 3000 years before now, uh, the first people were here, uh, Native Americans, the Piscataways, the Manicokes, uh, for example, um, uh, and the Susquehannocks were uh, in this area as Native people for thousands of years, much longer time than Europeans, and most of us have been thinking about history on this site and using its, uh, its fabulous uh, natural resources as uh, food and shelter uh, for their cultures. And there's evidence of that, archeological evidence of the first people, of colonial folks coming in and then uh, up through the history of uh, the founding of the country. Um, of course, at one time, remember, Annapolis was uh, capital for six months, uh, capital of the country, uh, bouncing back and forth from Philadelphia before it ultimately went to Washington, DC. Uh, and then through the Civil War and then uh, post-war reconstruction, Jim Crow era, and into modern times of increasing environmental awareness, but facing new challenges of uh, climate change, of pollution, and of um, all of the other things that have social and economic impacts of uh, um, diversity, equity, and uh, inclusion and justice uh, in the system. So these highlight human interactions, and it's a great opportunity uh, in this building. We're, um, as soon as this is done, we will be installing a public exhibit on the history of humans at this site built around the archeological program, which again is a citizen science-based program doing archeology span on this site and featuring some of the other um, sites, uh, other uh, colonial sites uh, on this property, as well as uh, uh, the Native American people that lived on the shorelines here as well. So as I understand it, the renovations will be completed possibly by summer, and that potentially there could be at least group tours if COVID vaccinations move along as we think, that potentially in the summer there might be some group tours about the building architecturally this summer? 
Yes, um, I expect the, the renovation, which has been ongoing for a bit over a year now, um, it will be completed this spring. Uh, and then we can do uh, guided tours of the building. There will not be, uh, at that point, uh, exhibits in, in the building, but the, the exhibit design uh, for the building is nearly complete now and will be finished about the time that the renovation is completed. And then uh, beginning in late summer, we'll begin to construct and install uh, this history exhibit uh, a 3000 year history, but also featuring uh, pretty much this, this, the uh, building itself and the people that lived in the building, the Selmans and then the Kirkpatrick Howitts. <clears throat> in this um, building and the, and the community uh, of people living around uh, this site here, and that uh, exhibit will take about six months to complete. So um, roughly a year from now, we'll be able to have public uh, access to the history exhibit as well as the building. Um, so it's not a huge building. It's not like a huge museum where it can handle millions of people, but we'll have it in a controlled way for public access, school groups and things like that. But it's a Smithsonian quality exhibit that everybody can look forward to seeing next summer, which is wonderful right, right here in Anne Arundel County. That's right. Our partners are the are the exhibit people from the Smithsonian in Washington. They're helping us to design and, uh, and construct the exhibit. And I know you're keeping an eye on, again, COVID and vaccinations and that kind of thing, but I believe the hope is that potentially you'll be able to maybe have some science Saturdays um, and other programs that you've had in past years this summer. You're just going to see how it goes. Is that correct at this time? Uh, that's right. Most of the programs that we have been running for, for many decades now um, were uh, suspended uh, and shifted to virtual programming, much like this one, uh, this podcast, uh, in, over the past year as a result of the pandemic. And those include um, evening lecture series and podcasts and uh, other ways of uh, teach, training and uh, education in STEM for school kids and uh, for teachers. Uh, and our own uh, internship program for uh, university level students who uh, work with us uh, to get hands-on experience in research that would normally be here on site or working with our um, scientists in the field, but are been suspended. So we hope, of course, that with everybody getting vaccinated and uh, being able to suppress uh, uh, the, the, the virus, um, in the future, very near, we hope by early summer that we'll begin to be able to reopen uh, other aspects of our programming uh, in the summertime, but we have to wait and see how that goes. And it depends on everybody's cooperation. So just like climate change, uh, your ability to um, behave uh, correctly and prevent transmission of the virus and to get vaccinated uh, and respect the science that teaches us about uh, disease transmission uh, and invasive species and climate change and pollution ecology and fishery management and all those things are important. So those are all things that we all can participate in. Well, thank you, Tuck, for taking time to talk with me today. Is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about, either about the mission of CERC or things that we can do to make our world a better place? Uh, well, I really appreciate the chance to talk with you, Susan, and to talk with your uh, listeners. We are open to the public. We uh, welcome you um, to come and walk on this incredibly beautiful site and to participate in our programs um, virtually mostly now, but increasingly back into 
uh, direct public hands-on access, um, and to spread the word about this tremendous resource that's right in your backyard. Science in your backyard is what we uh, like to say, uh, right in the backyard of Anne Arundel County in Annapolis. And yet many people have not come to visit us uh, in the past. We have run about 6,000 school kids a year on class field trips from local schools. We have evening lecture series and opportunities and uh, activities, including Science Saturdays, um, which are family-oriented opportunities for people to bring their family uh, to come and meet some of our scientists, learn the science and hands-on, and have a great and fun time. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tuck. And thank you for all that CERC is doing to provide policymakers with the information they need to make sound science-based decisions. Again, my guest has been Dr. Tuck Hines, Director and Principal Investigator at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center in Edgewater, Maryland. Until next time, I'm Susan Seifried with Visit Annapolis in Anne Arundel County for Destination Annapolis.